I'm Ruxandra Guidi, host of The Catch, a podcast from Foreign Policy and the Walton Family Foundation about the seafood we eat and the impact it can have on our world. This season, we'll hear how Norway is handling cod's changing migration patterns and what it says about fisheries in other parts of the world. Season three of The Catch is out now. When President Biden and world leaders met in Lithuania for a NATO summit this week, the war in Ukraine felt close. Lithuania is just next door to Belarus, a Russian ally. We have 31 heads of state and government here, so there's just a ton of security everywhere. There are German Patriot missiles that have been brought in to protect the summit. Emily Rahala is the Brussels bureau chief for The Post. She's been reporting on the summit from Vilnius, Lithuania. Lithuania is a really strong uh, supporter of Ukraine, and you really feel that here in the capital during the summit. There are Ukrainian flags everywhere. Uh, When I was waiting for the bus yesterday morning, the bus had a sign on it that said, while you wait for this bus, uh, Ukrainians are waiting for F-16s. There was a lot at stake at this meeting. The possible expansion of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And the biggest question of all, how to support Ukraine while keeping it outside of the alliance. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Libby Casey. It's Wednesday, July 12th. Today, we dig into this pivotal NATO summit, tensions with Russia, and why Ukraine is not being invited into the alliance for now. Going into this summit, what was the big question on everyone's mind? The big question and the very difficult question looming over the summit is what the alliance was going to do about Ukraine's request to join NATO. Ukraine has wanted to join this alliance for a really long time, 15, 20 years. But since Russia's full-scale invasion, that request and that demand, particularly from President Zelensky, has become more direct and more more assertive. And it's raised some really tough questions for the alliance uh, as, as they were heading into this summit as to how they will respond. So let's talk about the response. What do we know now about the answer? Well, it was really quite dramatic, Libby. Yesterday on the first day of the summit, Jens Stoltenberg, who's the head of NATO, gets up there and previews that the wording on Ukrainian membership was going to be live in a few hours. And allies have been spent, you know, months, specifically very intensely for weeks, negotiating the specific wording on membership, trying to balance a desire to go further for than what they've said in the past to Ukraine with some fears about escalation or aggravating Russia in some camps. So... Stoltenberg gets up there and says, we'll have the wording for you in a few hours. And not long after that, Zelensky starts tweeting. And he published a tweet that called the wording and the process absurd. He lashed out against the alliance and the whole mood just dropped. Uh, Not long after that, the alliance came forward with the language and it said that Ukraine can join the alliance when allies agree and conditions allow. And that's a sort of tightly negotiated wording that um, Ukraine, it seems, felt did not go far enough. 
Zelensky has since been a little bit more diplomatic, let's say, in his response. The outcome of the NATO summit in Vilnius is very much needed and meaningful success for Ukraine. And I'm grateful to all leaders in NATO countries for very practical and unprecedented support. So what are you reading both in the tweet and also how he's now navigating this situation? That's right. I mean, it's hard to know what he what his goal was. It seems very plausible that it was a moment of anger. Uh, who among us has not tweeted in a moment of anger? Um, other analysts have read it as a last-ditch chance to negotiate. The draft was, you know, still a draft. It had not been published. So perhaps he was trying to get people's attention and seek a tweak in the wording. Um, we don't know yet, but it, what is really clear is that that tweet had a really big impact and uh, changed the mood of the summit almost instantly. Ukrainian President Zelensky has a sense of what he will be able to go home with and not go home with. Um, What does he need out of this meeting, short, obviously, of being allowed to join NATO? So I think the reason that Zelensky was so upset when about the draft language was that he really wanted to take back a message to Ukrainian forces and to the Ukrainian people that NATO membership was on the horizon, that there's going to be help and a sense of security in the future. I think what we saw today as he changed his tone was an effort to recalibrate his message and leave the summit on a positive note so that he can deliver that message, that uh, NATO allies are going to stand with Ukraine and that Ukraine's future is going to be in NATO. And that is not exactly the message that he delivered in his tweet. So it has been evident that President Biden, other leaders have said Ukraine cannot join NATO while Russia is waging war on it. So explain to us, Emily, why that is a hard line, why that's not a surprise, but then what happens in the future? Yeah, this is really gets to the heart of the, the debate and the dilemma that particularly President Biden has faced. NATO has collective defense, so that means that an attack on one is attack on all. If Ukraine was a member of the alliance, the entire alliance would be at war with with Russia right now. So traditionally, when people have talked about Ukrainian membership, they've said, well, you know, uh, we don't want to provoke Russia. Um, Since the full-scale invasion, the conversation on membership has changed a little bit. Um, Some NATO allies, particularly those in Eastern Europe, I'm thinking of Poland and, and the Baltic nations, say, why do we have to worry about provoking Russia? Russia already launched uh, an invasion of a neighboring country. Whereas other allies, notably the United States, but also uh, Germany and I'm sure others, have, have really pushed back against the idea of laying out a timeline, saying we can't do this right now while they're at war. Let's leave it vague and we'll revisit it later at some unspecified date in the future. So when we read that, you know, the NATO leaders would invite Ukraine to join the military alliance, when the allies agree and the conditions are met, what does that actually mean? I mean, that's a really good question. And I think it's one that both the allies and Ukraine will probably be debating for literally years ahead. Um, In 2008, the alliance said to Ukraine in a similar declaration, uh, you can join uh, it basically said you can join, but they didn't specify when. 
So the question is, does this go further than that? I would argue that the language itself does not really go further than that. They're still saying to Ukraine, yes, we want you to be a member in the future, but we're not really going to tell you what that future looks like, when it might be, and under what terms. A lot's changed since 2008, right, Uh, in terms of how Ukraine's evolved, but also the war that's being waged right now by Russia. So is Ukraine any closer to membership to NATO? I think we have to wait and see. So what what allies, particularly, you know, again, the U.S. and Germany and the people who are a little bit more conservative on this language, what they're saying is, yes, this is a change. Uh, We see a closer political relationship between Ukraine and NATO. We say NATO countries arming Ukraine, offering uh, security assurances going forward to keep their military uh, functioning, to keep it modernizing. We see the creation of a new a new um, NATO-Ukraine council where Ukrainians can have a seat at the table at NATO. On the other hand, uh, in real practical terms, Ukraine is still very much outside of the alliance. I mentioned the collective security guarantees, the idea that attack on one is an attack on all. For NATO, that article is called Article 5. And unless you're a member, you don't have it. You can't have half of it. You can't have a little bit of it. So the key thing here from Ukraine's perspective is that they don't have that. They don't have the collective protections of being in the alliance. That has not changed. But the context around it definitely has. Emily, has there been pushback from the Biden administration in trying to respond with, we have given you a lot. You do have our support on so many other levels. Yeah, that's a, a an interesting question. We have not seen senior U.S. officials call out Zelensky or other Ukrainian officials for their criticism or for their demands. Uh, when we speak to diplomats and officials from the United States and also from across the alliance, we do hear a little bit of this, though. There's a sense of frustration, um, a wish that these things could be communicated privately and not litigated on Twitter. And I think that tension is really a current running under this meeting and the close of this summit. Before Russia waged war on Ukraine, um, there were concerns that members of NATO had raised about functioning democracy in Ukraine and corruption. Are those going to be parts of this pathway to joining NATO? I mean, are there other sort of things that Ukraine has to do besides get out of under the thumb of Russia to qualify? There are. And I think I think NATO diplomats and officials have struggled with how to talk about this. They want to show their support, their political support for Ukraine at every moment they can. But when they're speaking privately, when they're speaking off the record, a lot of allies do raise questions around um, Ukraine's anti-corruption efforts, the way that it's going to build its democracy. And I'm sure in conversations behind the scenes, that idea is being addressed. Emily, The NATO alliance has to be aware of how Russia perceives how it talks about Ukraine and Ukraine's future with NATO. So what does this summit and the latest news out of NATO mean for the war in Ukraine, but also how Russia approaches it? Russia is not going to like this summit. We saw Sweden step a little bit closer to membership. We have Ukraine deepening its political ties with the alliance and getting, again, a reiteration of the promise that it will one day join. And both of those things, Russia opposes. What I think is really interesting on this Russia question and what has been a change over the years, particularly since the full-scale invasion, is how the alliance thinks about Russia. 
It used to be, as you said, a fear of escalation, a fear that we don't want to provoke Russia. We don't want to make Russia angry. That instinct is definitely still there. But particularly along the eastern side of the alliance, among allies, again, in Poland, in the Baltics, they're saying, why do we have to listen to what Russia's saying? Why do we have to consider Russia's will here? And so I do think that there's been a shift within the alliance on how they talk about Russia and how they see Russia. But of course, that fear of an escalating conflict or of nuclear warfare, say, is still there. After the break, we'll talk about the Biden administration and what's behind its controversial decision to send cluster bombs to Ukraine. We'll be right back. Huge news uh, in terms of military and defense on the eve of the summit and that President Biden has agreed to provide Ukraine with cluster bombs. Can you talk to us about why those bombs are so controversial and what that means for the war? Yeah, so cluster munitions are a type of munition that basically drops um, hundreds of little bomblets that are explosive and incredibly deadly. And Ukraine wants them because they are in the process of launching this counteroffensive. They're trying to push back Russian troops that are dug in quite deeply uh, along Ukraine's south and east. And they argue that these munitions are going to help them basically move forward against this entrenched enemy position. But the issue of cluster munitions is incredibly divisive because they have a very clear record of harming civilians, including and particularly children. A lot of NATO allies in many, many countries around the world have banned their use over concerns about, you know, children going and thinking they spot a little ball or a little toy and being killed or maimed, uh, which, of course, has happened in the past. And that's because there are duds, right? There's a non-explosion rate, so they fall on the ground, they're left there, and they can be found years later even. That's exactly right. So these little bomblets sort of scatter out over the terrain, and some of them explode, and some of them are left unexploded. And the concern is that, you know, years later, perhaps after the conflict is over, that civilians are going to be killed or injured by these unexploded munitions. So why did Biden greenlight them? President Biden faced a lot of pressure to greenlight them because the Ukrainians said, listen, we really need these to push back the Russians. The Ukrainian argument, um, which appeared to have swayed the Biden administration, was that, you know, the Russians are using them to invade our country. We want to use them to push them back. They've also made assurances to the U.S. that they will track their use to try to limit civilian impact. And they've said, listen, th these are our civilians. Uh, we have an interest in making this as safe as possible for incredibly dangerous weapons. Because mm, they're talking about dropping them on their own territory, right? So this is a question of whether or not it will be Ukrainian children and Ukrainian farmers finding them. Emily, is there a lot of conversation happening in the NATO meetings about 
how the war effort is going, frank conversations about what Ukraine could actually do to hold back Russia? I think a lot of those conversations have been happening on the sidelines of the meeting. It's what everyone is talking about here, but it's not what uh, NATO officials or Ukrainian leaders, frankly, want to discuss on a stage of this size. I think there's a sense that the counteroffensive is not going as well as some expected. The Ukrainians counter that, well, perhaps uh, the expectations were too high. They're urging allies and observers to give them a little bit more time and emphasizing that it's quite hard to push back uh, entrenched positions like what the Russians have right now. Ukraine is not the only country that's been agitating and pushing to join NATO. So let's talk about Sweden and how Sweden is making this bid to get into NATO. And just before the summit began, they got through a really tough roadblock to that process. That's right. If we go back to just after Russia launched the full-scale invasion, so in last winter, 2022, um, very quickly after that happened, two countries that had sort of been historically non-aligned in terms of their military, Sweden and Finland raised their hands and, and said, we want to join the alliance. And the alliance reacted quite positively. What happened was that um, over time, one ally, Turkey, started to raise objections over their membership. And it became clear eventually that they weren't so worried about Finland, but they had some problems with Sweden. And since the summit last year, Turkey has been raising a variety of concerns about Swedish membership and essentially holding up the process of getting them into the alliance. So why has Turkey been holding up Sweden's membership to NATO? Turkey's leader has cited a variety of reasons at different times, which is part of what has confounded the rest of the alliance. His chief complaint, at least at the beginning, was that Sweden was not handing over Kurds that he accused of being militants. Since then, he's added some other grievances to the list. He has called out Sweden for failing to stop uh, Quran burning protests, and he's made some other demands. It's basically changed over time. So what do we know about why Turkey's president is now letting go of that hold on Swedish membership? Because, because there are certainly concessions that he's getting publicly, but what's happening behind the scenes as well? What we know is that there's been months and months of very fraught and careful diplomacy around this issue, really from all sides. On the eve of the summit, Turkey's leader agreed to move ahead and agreed to ratify Swedish accession, you know, saying yes in return for concessions on, for instance, terrorism cooperation with Sweden, we will let this move ahead. The question, I think, is what else happened behind the scenes? We know that Turkey wants American F-16s, but that has been held up on this issue. And one of the questions going forward is whether the U.S. is going to release those planes uh, potentially in return for this deal. And so what do we know so far about the Biden administration giving those F-16 fighters to Turkey? Well, senior U.S. officials have signaled that this is going to go ahead. But of course, there's a congressional question here. My instinct is that we have not yet heard the end of the Turkey-Sweden situation. There are still a lot of things that need to happen for this ratification to happen and for this deal to stick. So this is something that people are going to be watching very closely in the days and weeks ahead. 
Mm. What would Sweden's NATO membership mean, especially when it comes to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, so I think it's significant on two levels. One, from a security perspective, uh, this is like dropping the final puzzle piece into a new security map of Europe. It was the one country in that region that was not a NATO member, and now it is. And that bolsters the alliance in the far north. It bolsters the alliance in the Baltic Sea. And secondly, I think it has tremendous symbolic potential. Vladimir Putin does not like... NATO, and he did not like the idea of NATO growing. He used the threat of NATO expansion as a pretext for his full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Now, uh, about 16 months into that war, he is being met with a much larger NATO. And I think uh, the alliance really sees that as a sort of symbolic rebuke to his war and to his ideas. Obviously, Putin wanted to try to diminish NATO's power. But instead, Emily, it seems like it's had the opposite effect. The invasion of Ukraine has had the opposite effect by having new interest in membership, uh, a real focus on these summits. Is this NATO summit going to be remembered for the decision on Ukraine, uh, the advancement of Sweden? What do you think the takeaway will be? I think you're absolutely right, Um Putin has managed to give NATO a lot more relevance than it had even a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, um, French President Emmanuel Macron was calling NATO brain dead. And there was a lot of questions about its relevance and its capacity. As to what will be the takeaway from this summit, I really think it depends on if the alliance delivers for Ukraine. The alliance has made Ukraine a promise here in Vilnius. But it's a pretty vague promise, and I think uh, allies and really the rest of the world will be watching to see whether the alliance begins to take steps towards that goal or whether it was all a bit of a show. Um, And that will very much determine uh, how this moment uh, is remembered. Emily, thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. Emily Rahala is the Brussels bureau chief for The Washington Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Gabe O'Connor. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Monica Campbell. Thanks to Ariel Plotnick and Rena Flores. If you want to show your support for the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to support the work we do, and you get access to -to up-to-date international reporting like what you just heard here go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Libby Casey. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>